Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning on a Tuesday, the 22nd of August. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura with Francine Lacqua in London. Tom Keene is off this week. Conrad DeQuadro is here with me in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Senior economist at RDQ Economics. Kind enough to stay with us. He was on TV with me and friend uh, as well. Uh, Conrad, let's start by looking ahead to Jackson Hole, uh, if, if we could. What are you going to be listening uh, for you and Fran, we're talking about uh, your inflation expectations during Bloomberg uh, surveillance on Bloomberg television. Uh, what are you going to be listening for from policymakers from these Fed presidents gathered uh, in Jackson, Wyoming, a little later this week? Well, I think one of the main things is uh, how strongly does Janet Yellen still believe in the policy outlook that was outlined at the last Fed meeting, and particularly in terms of the the rate hike that the Fed had in its SEPs, uh, one more rate hike this year expected to be in December, is that still li- likely? Um, and also, how closely do we the, the topic of the the um, symposium is obviously financial stability. That's a topic of Janet Yellen's speech. Um, how closely does she link? Financial stability to monetary policy, and that you know, obviously, that's not a um, one of the official mandates of uh, of the Fed, and we know that that Draghi is speaking there too, and it's not a mandate of the of the ECB, which has a single mandate of inflation. But how important is that in policy, and how important is that in in the outlook, and particularly as it relates to normalizing balance sheets, uh, given that that's I think one of the risks to financial stability is in the very large size of of um, Big countries, uh, big big countries, uh, central bank balance sheets. Is it your? You look at that dual mandate. There's the the labor component and the inflation component. Do you think that this Fed has been paying too much attention to one versus the other? Well, initially, and and I think that this was just the um, the the focus of Janet Yellen as a labor market economist. She was when she first became Fed chair was seems to be predominantly looking at the, the, the labor market component. And I think that was just a function of the fact that the unemployment rate was still very elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that the unemployment rate has moved through what the Fed thinks is a rate that's consistent with full employment, um, the focus has shifted to inflation because we have inflation that's below their, their target. Now, um, my opinion is that this is not a significant miss on, on inflation, one and a half versus 2% inflation. But I don't think that that's the view of the Fed when they're uh, looking at uh, equilibrium rates, at least the way that they look at policy, equilibrium rates have come down. Their ability to generate negative real rates um, is challenged by a low equilibrium rate uh, and inflation that is below their target. So that the, the focus of the Fed on inflation, I think, has been, has been ramped up. And in my opinion, is probably a little bit too much. I don't think a half a percentage point miss on inflation is something to get too excited about. Right. But, but what if it underlied, Conrad, a, a bigger problem, right, that we're measuring things wrong and that we need to have a whole set of numbers or data points to see exactly what's going on in the economy? Well, I, I think the there that's that's a good point. Um, and it's, it gets back to the the question about the, the Fed um, in, in their models when we have – because they have this Phillips curve view of the inflation process, which is not a view that, that um, I subscribe to, but, but it is ingrained in, in, in the Fed. And, and I, last week we had the, the minutes and there were some doubters on, uh, on the, the Phillips curve. Um, a lot was made of that. I, I think probably a little bit too much because there's always been doubters uh, about the Phillips curve. Um, at the Fed, but the predominant view remains that when we have a labor market that's relatively tight, 
that should lead to higher inflation. And obviously, that's not happening. So, you know, the point that you make that is the, the process has something changed. Um, I don't think that that's, that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think the Fed has always been a little bit too focused on how much slack uh, particularly the labor market, but economic slack more generally affects inflation um, w- without considering uh, other things, without considering the productivity environment. If we think about wages, the Fed has been questioning why haven't wages moved up when um, the labor market is tight? Well, I think that we need to also consider productivity, and productivity growth is very low. So um, is it really uh, contrary to economic models that wage growth hasn't picked up to the same degree as it has previously when the unemployment rate has moved down to close to 4%. Um, I don't think that it's that surprising given that productivity growth is so much lower than it's been in the past. So do you still look at the Phillips curve? Well, I mean, I look at it from the trying to assess how the Fed might view the outlook. I, I don't, my in, inflation outlook is, is not necessarily based on, or, or I shouldn't necessarily, it's, it's not based on, on a, a Phillips curve view. And I think that um, from my perspective, uh, first, we, we have obviously had a number of special factors that have affected inflation o- over the last few months. We've had um, the cell phone price wars, obviously. We've had some uh, extreme volatility in medical care prices where we had significant increases in things like prescription drugs towards the end of the year and the early part of this year. And then the reversal of that uh, is what gave us this downtrend in, in core inflation. So we've had a number of, of special factors. The most recent report, we would have had a, a two-tenths increase in core CPI had it not been for a record decline in hotel prices. Um, so these are, are, are some, some technical factors. Unfortunately, every month there seems to be another one. And so the, the question is, uh, you know, how long are, will there be this willingness to say that these are idiosyncratic factors? Um, it's not something to be too worried about on, in, in terms of the Fed. Um, my expectation is we, we probably aren't going to have a special factor every month, and we'll have core inflation trend back towards two percent. Um, but as I said earlier, I, I, I just I'm not as concerned about inflation being half a percent off target as the Fed is. The the, the watchword in Portugal a few weeks back was coordination. Uh, you're going to have Mario Draghi and Janet Yellen hanging out at the Chuck Wagon Supper at Grand Teton National Park. And I wonder if you think because of that, we're going to get uh, more of an indication of how these two central banks plan to exit the, the quantitative easing policies they have in place. Well, I, I don't think that there is um, official coordination on the part of central banks and that they, they, they sit down and say, okay, you know, I'm going to start to normalize my balance sheet. Um, Draghi times the, uh, the, the tapering announcement. Um, because Janet Yellen has, has given that, in, that indication to him. I, I think it's more that the, there's a coordination of the dissipation of the tail risks uh, in that we had a, a tail risk in Europe with the possibility w- related to political factors, uh, and that tail risk has passed, mm-hmm. uh, I think, most importantly follow the, following the election in France. Um, and in the U.S., the tail risks, in my opinion, passed a long time ago. Um, and so uh, at least the, 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 the downside tail risks. I mean, now we, I think we need to start thinking about the potential tail risks on the other side um, related to this topic that's, that's going to be discussed in, in Jackson Hole, financial stability. Are there financial or unseen financial stability risks from this very aggressive monetary policies of the, the large central banks? So I don't think it's coordinated. I think that, that the, what drove 
central banks to to put these emergency policies in place, um, those factors have dissipated. And so now, both here and in Europe, mm-hmm. and so now we're getting a, a synchronized move towards normalizing balance sheets. And there are different stages. You know, the U.S. is, is going to be winding sure. down its balance sheet. The, the ECB is just going to be adding at a slower pace. Uh, and in the ECB case, that's probably, or not probably, but most likely not going to start um, until 2018. Um, but, you know, it's just the similar factors that have been driving uh, QE. Um, they're, they're sort of moving in the same direction now. Got about 30 seconds here. We'll come back with you. But let me ask you about uh, scarcity uh, when it comes to, to the ECB and to Europe. How worried are you? How worried do you think the bank is about, about scarcity when it comes to purchases? Well, I, I think that's part of the, the, the factor. And, you know, when they, they look at how much buying they, they have, if they were to continue at this pace, um, and um, just given the capital key, are, are there enough assets for them to buy? That's probably something that they're that they're considering. But I don't think it's the primary driver of their of their policy. I think that um, they were worried, and that we've heard this um, ECB meeting after ECB meeting that the, the primary uh, concern for them was uh, political, um, geopolitical, and and that concern has eased. Uh, following the, the the last few few elections, or you know, even before that, the the concern of the further ramping up of of populism after the Brexit vote, after the election of of Donald Trump, um, there were I think the big concern on their part was where would we see some of that in yeah. France, um, and that didn't happen. Yeah. So so there are still some elections coming, um, but I think the concerns are just dissipated. Let me start there with uh, Conrad DeQuadras of uh, RDQ Economics, who's here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. We're talking about Jackson Hole, prospects for coordination, uh, what effect that might have on currency. How about dollar strength? We've seen such dollar weakness here uh, over these recent months. What's your forecast for, outlook for the strength of the dollar going forward? Well, obviously, uh, with the um, uh, once we had the election, once we had the prospect of, of changes in fiscal policy as the views about the Fed normalizing policy came more closely into view. Uh, we had that big move in the dollar, um, and now that that has reversed. Now, I, I question whether that reversal has, has gone too far, um, whether it's uh, not necessarily because I think that the odds of getting the, the tax reform are, are very high. You know, I'd love to see it. I think that's a very important thing and, and necessary thing for the longer-term U.S. economic outlook. Um, but I, I wonder whether maybe markets have gone too far in their expectations for uh, other central bank policies, uh, whether it's the Bank of, bank of England, whether it's the ECB. Um, and expectations there may have gotten a bit ahead of themselves, um, and also whether the markets are, are, are appropriately reflecting the adjustment in monetary policy in, in the U.S., um, and uh, whether we have, although the expectations are there for this announcement on balance sheet normalization, um, I, I would expect that once the, the Fed begins that process, that's going to put some upper pressure on, on, on the dollar. I still think that the market's probably uh, underpricing what the Fed is likely to do on rates, and, and that should pressure the dollar higher also. So I remain of the view that the, that the, the the direction of the dollars is likely to be towards um, a, a, a stronger position, um, but um, might might take a few a few weeks here to get further information on monetary policies. And, and as we get into the fiscal policy debate, of course, the, the first thing that needs to happen on that front uh, is um, uh, getting through the, the, the debt ceiling and passing that extension to the debt ceiling. Um, that's going to be a big step. And I think that once that com- gets behind us, once we see that the um, Congress and the administration can work together on getting that done, then maybe we, we start to look more seriously about the prospects for, for tax reform. I um, 
wanted to ask you just about the the dilemma the the Fed faces, uh, the administration faces, everyone faces. Every time a, a labor report comes out, it seems we see such slow wage growth and and uh, productivity is still a very big uh, concern. Do you see a way out? Here, when it comes to that, something that could jumpstart uh, wage growth in particular. Well, if the, the the we get the wage growth, but it's just simply because the um, the labor market has gotten so tight um, that companies are competing for a, a, a small amount of, of labor, and, and in fact, not we're not any longer talking about unused labor. They're just competing among uh, labor that that each company has. We get that sort of upper pressure on wages, um, and that is that that kind of an outcome. I don't think is necessarily a good one in that it either leads to a, ske- a squeeze on pro- corporate profits. Um, or it, it leads to a more significant uh, pickup in inflation as companies try to pay for that, and and that could then um, get a more aggressive response out of the Fed. Um, obviously, w- what would be more um, positive is if that uh, m- pressure on wages upward comes uh, from from stronger productivity growth, uh, and there, that's a much more slower moving process. But it's a process that I think relates to to tax reform uh, in that one of the issues, I think, on productivity growth is that we haven't had the investments in capital that we've we've had in the past. Um, and, and if we were to have tax reform, um, I think that's something that could encourage more business investment in capital, um, could put upper pressure on, on growth rates of productivity. Uh, and then we would have, I think, a more positive uh, force on on wages, um, re- resulting in stronger wage growth than just simply that being related to tightness in the labor market. Um, Conran, you were talking there about the ECB and the BOE. Who has a currency problem? So the BOE is dealing with the falling pound, and of course that's pushing up inflation, but it's not the kind of the sticky kind of inflation. But then the ECB seems to be mentioning it's worried about euro levels. I think that right now the the Bank of England probably has the the bigger problem in that um, both the ECB and the Bank of England. Are single mandate institutions, um, uh, at least in, in in theory, and I know that they've both strayed a little bit from that than the and they have in the past. But um, we have inflation in the UK that's uh, I'd say you know well ahead of where they would like to see their target. Um, that's uh, I think unlikely to reverse significantly. They're not even expecting it to reverse with the the, the pound weakening to the, the extent that it has. Um, the ECB right now is just talking about some concerns, or at least there's a few people on the governing council that that might be a little bit concerned um, that the strength of the euro is is going to undo some of the progress that we've seen in the in the eurozone. But I think that the bigger problem, um, as far as the the central banks, it, it relates to the Bank of England, and that there's there's really um, nothing that that we're likely to see that mm-hmm. re- that reverses this this uh, weakening in the pound, um, given how that influences UK inflation. It has a much stronger influence on UK inflation than uh, dollar movements have on on US inflation. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's likely to be a, an issue for them with inflation running where it is. Sterling right now, one twenty eight twenty six. Uh, Connor DeQuadro is joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York. Senior economist at RDQ Economics. Thanks for the time here on radio. Well, the president, as I mentioned, delivered in a speech to the nation last night from Fort Myer, just outside Washington, D.C., focused on U.S. strategy in Afghanistan. And a pleasure to have Larry Korb with us now. He's with the Center for American Progress, left-leaning think tank in Washington, D.C. He was a, an official in the Reagan administration. Larry, the, the president at the beginning of that speech said, my original instinct was to pull out, and historically, I like following my instincts. Uh, the president did not do that. He did a bit of an about-face uh, here. How, how radical a transformation has this president undergone when it comes to his thinking on the war in Afghanistan? 
Well, I think it's very radical, and I mean, basically, what he said in the campaign was pretty well uh, <clears throat> motivated by people like Steve Bannon, who are not there. And in the administration now, you got uh, you know three generals whom nobody would have thought would have been that close to a, a candidate like uh, like President Trump. And it's clear they're the ones who convinced him to take the uh, stand he's taking now about uh, Afghanistan. I'll put a question to you that I put to Michael Rubin from the American Enterprise Institute a few minutes ago on, on Bloomberg Television. How does this war end? How does the war in Afghanistan end? It doesn't seem like a lot of people are talking about a political solution. When you look at how wars have ended in the past, that's where and how they have ended. How do you see this coming to a close? Well, basically, you're going to have at some point, if you can get a stable government in Afghanistan that has the support of the majority of the people, to come to some sort of uh, agreement with the Taliban to allow them to have control in particularly in the southern Pashtun areas, assuming that they go along with the Constitution. It's not going to be perfect, but that's what you need. And then you have to have all the countries surrounding it, uh, Russia, China, India, and Pakistan, you know, ensure that that uh, arrangement holds because none of them want an unstable Afghanistan. But it's very easy to say that's what you need. It's hard to get from uh, from here to there. Larry, with the president now warning against a hasty Afghanistan withdrawal, what does this tell us about the administration's appetite to be much more involved in foreign policy? Well, it, it, I think, and I give the president credit for that, for changing his, you know, his campaign <clears throat> rhetoric on, on this particular issue, as well as rejecting the Steve Bannon proposal that we turn it over to, uh, you know, a group of uh, contractors to fight. I think what it says is he's going to be very more traditional foreign policy president, much like George W. Bush and Barack Obama, rather than this, you know, radical person who basically said, you know, we've got to rebuild America and stop worrying about the world. All right. What is the one thing that actually surprised you the most in the speech yesterday? Again, is it a little bit like what David was alluding to, that he may have turned, so now he listens to his counsel? Or is it just that he's not afraid of alienating his base? After all, all his campaign was based on making, um, you know, America first, and this is not America first. Well, I think it surprised me that he has been captured, if you will, and I'm not using that in a derogatory sense, by the traditional foreign policy establishment, because had people thought that that's what they were voting for, it's very unlikely that a lot of them would have voted for him when he was talked about, quote-unquote, drain the swamp. I mean, you could have Kelly, Madison, McMaster, you know, in a Secretary Clinton administration uh, or, you know, a, a Barack Obama administration. In fact, you know, all three of them were, were in the Obama administration. David Gura here in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. We're talking to Larry Korber, the Center for American Progress. He joins us on our phone lines. We continue to analyze the speech President Trump delivered last night at Fort Myer on the subject of U.S. strategy in Afghanistan. And he talked a bit about Pakistan as well. Larry Korber, if I could ask you about that. He said it's time for Pakistan to demonstrate its commitment to civilization, order, and to peace. How complicated is this relationship right now between the U.S. and Pakistan? How essential is Pakistan to the U.S. as we continue to support, uh, support troops in Afghanistan? 
Well, it's essential because Afghanistan is a landlocked country, and you've got to get a lot of the supplies there uh, through, uh, uh, through, through Pakistan. The Pakistanis have different objectives than we do in Afghanistan. They don't want to see it become a, a haven, if you will, or a place for uh, India to have, uh, have, have influence. They're also concerned about the, <clears throat> the fact that they have an element of the Taliban in, in, uh, in, in Pakistan, the, the, Haqqani, the Haqqani network, that they don't want to get involved in a, a big, conflict, uh, big conflict with. So it's one of those things that, and, you know, all his, his predecessors have tried to deal with this. As somebody from the, the Bush administration told me one time, the Pakistanis are with you Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, they're on the other, you know, on the other hand. And his thing of, of talking about the fact that, well, India will, you know, work with Pakistan on that. No, that, that's not going, that's not going to, uh, going to happen. What the Pakistanis want is a stable situation in, in uh, Afghanistan that doesn't allow any of the outside countries to get uh, undue influence because they'll see that as a threat to them. Help us with the history here. I remember when the U.S. entered into this war, there was a lot of commentary about the, the, the Soviets' failed experiment in Afghanistan uh, as well. You and, and others must be able to sympathize with the president's frustration that this continues to to go on. He said last night he doesn't want to precipitate us out from this conflict. That's not uh, a tenable solution as well. But um, th- there is an element uh, among many American people of exhaustion here. Well, there is. And I think what people don't realize, we talk about well, you've got the terrorists and you've got the Taliban, you have a lot of other conflicts going on in Afghanistan. Even, you know, the Pashtuns, who, you know, we usually put in government, they have rivalries, you know, among themselves, as you will, in the northern and southern. You've got the northern alliance that doesn't like uh, the Pashtuns. They're, you know, the, and, and you also have sort of the, the cultural revolution where you have the, you know, folks in the city and, and the folks in the, in the country countryside. So there's a lot of elements going on in there. And that's why, you know, people called it the graveyard of the empires, because everybody who's tried to control that has found it almost impossible to do. We're concerned, the president said this, I think, correctly about, you know, al-Qaeda and and ISIS, but you don't have to be there to deal with them. You can attack them, you know, with, uh, from, from afar, as we doing in places like Yemen, we're attacking al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So the idea that somehow or another to, you know, prevent an attack on the United States, you've got to control Afghanistan. No. And really, until you get a government that has the support of the majority of the people, you're going to continue to have these divisions. I think in the long run, the Taliban are going to take part of the country. The government will have have another, and there'll be a very loose relationship uh, there. Um, Larry, the president didn't give much detail, but he did say that the new war plan will prevent vacuum for terrorists. How can we be so sure? Well, you can't. And, and, and it's, again, you know, by giving the military more authority to <clears throat> launch attacks, obviously this will make the, you know, the, the, the folks fighting the war on the ground uh, better. But the fact is that you can cause more problems than you solve. You may kill some terrorists, but if you kill innocent people, that's going to create more. Remember, Don Rumsfeld, Bush's uh, <clears throat> Secretary of Defense, said for every, you know, one of these people you kill, you create six more. And it's not going to be one militarily. You have to undermine what attracts people to this, you know, horrible, uh, horrible ideology. And so I think that that's important because you can win the battles. 
but lose the war. And I think, you know, we need to keep that, keep that in mind and recognize that in dealing with threats from terrorists, it's not just what you do on the battlefield. It's your homeland security, sharing intelligence. I mean, these folks that were motivated in Barcelona, you can't stop that even if you kill more uh, Taliban or al-Qaeda or ISIS people. Right, but can the U.S., for example, fight on multiple fronts? So if you're so committed to Afghanistan, what does it mean for, you know, U.S.'s foreign policy and, for example, the Middle East and Syria, but also how you deal with North Korea? Well, it does. And I think, you know, when we went into Afghanistan after 2001, we were a hegemon. I mean, actually, we were on our way to eliminating our federal deficit. No, but we didn't have any peer competitors you know, 16 years, it's different. I mean, General Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said is our main threat is Russia. And you've got the Chinese have a much better military, much better e- economy. And so we're putting more troops uh, into, in, into Europe. So the real question is, you know, uh, can you prioritize and how do you do it? I mean, when he was talking last night about, you know, getting the State Department more involved, but then he didn't point out the fact that his budget cut 35% from the State Department budget to fund more defense. I mean, and so those are things, I mean, we, you know, we're still the world's preeminent power, but we're not a hegemon anymore. We've got a lot of competition, and we have to start, you know, prioritizing. We're speaking with uh, Larry Corby, the Center for American Progress, former Assistant Secretary of uh, Defense. And Larry, let me just step back to ask you about the president's national security team uh, right now. I know you've observed it from there in, in, in Washington, D.C. Is, is it operating in a more uniform uh, fashion now? Is there, is there still the tension that existed uh, even during the Obama administration between uh, the national security team at the White House and, and the Pentagon, say? No, it isn't now, because basically you've turned it over to the generals. I mean, Mattis and Kelly, you know, are both Marines who came into the Marines at about the same time, served together. Uh, General Dunford, who's a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also served with them. So you've got three Marines up there. And then you've got General McMaster, who's a rising star in the Army. He was a hero in the first uh, Gulf War. And then, of course, uh, you know, he was the one who really, Petraeus got credit for it, but he started, you know, this whole counterinsurgency strategy when he was a field commander in Iraq. So you've got you know, basically um, the the military establishment basically running things. And, you know, the people who disagreed, whether it's Bannon or, you know, the Mooch or whoever else, they're gone. <laughs> the Mooch are out there. They, they, they are indeed. And, and, and I wonder uh, at this point, can you can you can you easily synthesize what the uh, what the national security strategy of this president is? As Fran mentioned, there was uh, so much rhetoric about America first on on the campaign trail. Has more nuance been introduced since then? Do you, do you have a good sense of what the strategy overall is, and did we uh, make some steps toward that last night in the in the speech that we heard from the president? Well, I think he moved in the right direction, and I think he was right. You know, for example, he was willing to turn it over to contractors here a couple of weeks ago, if you can believe some of the reports. This that was the, this was the Eric Prince uh, outfit, the, the proposal right, from Steve Right, that's right, Blackwater. And remember that Eric's sister, you know, works in the uh, in Education the department, yeah. Right, so... I, I think that is a step in the right direction, and I think the fact that we don't want a precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan is also, you know, correct. The question is, okay, you've done that. Now what? When will you know? How long will you go on? And what do you do if the Afghan government can never get the support of the people? I mean, you know, the, the you know they they've been in power. We created that in 2001. So they've been there for 16 years, and they still don't have the support of the people. And, yeah, the Taliban are making some gains militarily, but they're making gains because the people don't trust 
the, the people in Kabul. Larry, thanks very much. Appreciate all your time this morning here on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television uh, as well. Larry Korb with the Center for American Progress, left-leaning think tank uh, in Washington, D.C. Of course, uh, his service uh, for the U.S. government included a stint as uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense. David Gura here in New York, Francine Lacqua in London. Tom Keene is off this week. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. We continue to analyze the speech the president gave last night at Fort Myer, just outside Washington, D.C., focused on U.S. strategy in Afghanistan. Here to give us his perspective now is Eric Fanning, our former U.S. Secretary of the Army. He joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studios in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us on the program. And I wonder if I could just ask you, first of all here, sort of what do you make of the broad theme to this, the president's approach to foreign policy vis-a-vis what he's proposed in in Afghanistan? Does it indicate to you an, a more overarching strategy for U.S. engagement in the world? It doesn't really to me. What I heard last night actually um, wasn't a strategy per se or a new strategy. It's more of the same. Really, uh, what I think is important about tonight is the is the president coming to the realization that the options in Afghanistan are much more complicated and much narrower than he probably realized when he was a candidate. Help us understand sort of the process that led to the speech last night. Shortly after he was inaugurated, he went to Secretary of Defense James Mattis, asked for a review of the, the strategy in Afghanistan. How did all of that play out? Are, are you satisfied that he heard from the right people leading up to this decision, which he announced last night? I'm satisfied he heard from the right people uh, when he was considering the military aspect of this strategy. It's a very deliberate process that any administration goes through. Uh, It takes a great deal of time, and it can be very frustrating when you're in the middle of it. My concern in this administration is that he's not hearing from all elements of those who should be advising him. And I'm thinking particularly of the State Department, a department that is in many ways being gutted. The appointees aren't in place. The budget's being slashed. And I think I have a great deal of confidence coming out of eight years in the Pentagon that he's getting really good, sound military advice. But that's only one element of what should be a part of the strategy. Right. What should the rest of the strategy be, Secretary? If you look at, you know, the position that the U.S. has now taken on Afghanistan, what does it mean with how they deal with the Middle East, but also Russia, and I imagine China trying to get them closer to deal with Korea? Well, I think I would say the same thing for all of these regions. The military is an important component of what should be a broader strategy that should have all the tools of the U.S. foreign policy, national security toolbox at play, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's the Middle East. And so what I would hope to see is uh, a stepped-up appreciation for those other elements so that he's not just relying on the military advice and the military strategy. Right, but Secretary, when you say this is more of the same, I mean, for me, uh, you know, an outsider far away, it felt different because this was one of the first times that the president, first of all, acknowledged his previous stance on something and said, actually, I've changed my mind and this is what we're going to do. It, does it not feel like it's, it's um, I don't know if it's a, you know, reborn of the president, but certainly it's a different side to the president that we've seen? Well, that's exactly what I was saying. I don't think that there's any real change here in the strategy in as much as you can call it a strategy that he rolled out last night. It is a fundamental change in his viewpoint and in the decision that he's made to sort of stay the course, provide some more troops to change the momentum of the existing strategy. That's the biggest change from last night. It's the president's view and the decision that he came to. 
wanted to ask you, you were in the, the Pentagon when um, Secretary of Defense Ash Carter opened the services to transgender Americans to serve uh, in the armed forces, and we had this flurry of tweets from the president a few weeks ago, uh, seemingly reversing that uh, that decision. I, I wonder what you make of the, the way that that was announced, and um, would be curious if you've had any indication from folks within the Pentagon or within the defense community about the degree to which that, that's been used uh, as some sort of executive order. Well, I think there's still a great deal of confusion as to what's going to actually happen going forward with transgender service. I'd never have experienced uh, a major policy announcement via tweet before. Um, And these are very complicated issues. It took us an entire year uh, to figure out how to to change the policy in the first place and how to implement it. So everything I hear is there's still a great deal of confusion as, as where we're moving going forward. And I think also there's confusion because a decision had been made to allow service Uh, after a great deal of thought and discussion and debate. And it would be the first time we've ever told people, made a a compact with people you can serve and you can serve openly, and then reversed course. I guess I was uh, confused by the the way the president opened the speech last night, talking to the troops who had gathered there at Fort Myers, saying uh, that they transcend every line of race, ethnicity, creed, and color to serve together and sacrifice together in absolutely perfect uh, cohesion. Did that... uh come across to you as a bit tone deaf in light of that announcement? I think so. I think it's, uh, I think it's very inconsistent. Um, and it's one of the great things about the military actually has, in my view, been very successful over many years at integrating and opening up opportunities to service so that the president can stand up there and look out ag- over his force, representatives of his force that, that resemble the country they protect. All right. Thank you so much, Eric Fanning there, the former Army Secretary. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.